developing your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. From commando.com, this is Commando On Demand, where we talk to the industry movers and shakers to keep you up to date on everything digital. We'll get started in a moment, but first, we'd like to recognize and thank our partners who help make these Commando On Demand podcasts possible. Who won the Civil War? Who won the Civil War? Um, we did? The South? <laughs> like, the one in 1965? Or what Civil War? <laughs> who won it? Who was even in it? <laughs> who was in it? Just tell me who was in it. All right, you've probably heard audio clips like these before. Maybe you even know kids like these. Maybe they're your kids. So what's your opinion? Is technology dumbing us down? Is it really stealing our ability to think critically? Well, according to a Mars poll, 49% of Americans think that technology actually makes us dumber, while 46% say it makes us smarter. So if you think about it, it's an even split on this topic. I think the real question is not whether technology is dumbing us down, but whether we're allowing technology to actually think for us. I don't mean doing research. I mean actually thinking, making decisions, thinking critically, developing ideas, defining our imagination. Are we relying on tech to perform these things that used to define us as uniquely human? I'm Kim Commando, and this podcast may be a real wake-up call. Believe me when I say the research I did took me to some really interesting places, and I spoke with some scary smart people. We tackled the tough topics about technology and how it affects the human intellect. There's no one right answer, but I always think it's good to hear from the experts, the folks who actually study this day after day. And before we get to all that, just stay right where you are, because I have to extend a special thank you to our partners in this podcast. They help make it possible. I'm talking about Quip, a brand new type of toothbrush you have to know about. All right. I know you've had parents, teachers and dentists telling you how to brush your teeth your whole life. And it seems like everybody has a different technique. One thing that they all can agree on is that you have to brush your teeth for a full two minutes. I've been telling my son Ian that for years, Ah, but not anymore. I have a Quip and so does Ian. Quip is electric. It's small, it's light, it's sleek. There's a built-in two-minute timer that pulses every 30 seconds to remind you, are you ready for it? Yes, switch sides. You don't have to guess anymore. With Quip, new brush heads are automatically delivered. Just like the dentists recommend, every three months for just $5. So you can just forget about it. Try Quip and see why it's backed by more than 20,000 dental professionals. And me and my son Ian. We both love our Quip. Quip starts at just $25. That's it. Visit getquip.com slash tech right now. And you're going to get a deal. You get your first refill pack for free with any Quip electric toothbrush. That's your first refill pack free. Yes, absolutely free. Head over to getquip.com slash tech. That's G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash tech. Who is our vice president? <laughs> don't know. I have no idea. Mm, what's his name? Oh, my gosh. I have his name in my 
I mean, I have face in my head. Who is the vice president? Is that like a trick question? Who did the American colonies fight to win their independence? George Washington. They fought George Washington? It's happened to me, and I'm sure it's happened to you. You're sitting around with a group, maybe just your family members or friends. Somebody asks a question, and before another person can answer it, there's another person who picks up their phone and says, oh, well, let's just Google that. And there you have the answer instantaneously. The definition of intelligence is changing. Psychology today boils it down to this. With technology, our life is more efficient. It's cheaper, it's simpler, it's faster. On the other hand, when we're not connected to a device, we're more intellectually vulnerable. Without access to online knowledge, even a connected seven-year-old could quote-unquote outsmart us. So let's be honest. When you need to know how to get to places, what's the best way to survive a hurricane? How to invest your money? What are the symptoms of cancer? What do you do? Well, if you're like most people, you're tap, tap, tapping away on your device trying to find the answers. Is it because the device itself is smarter? Of course not. But some people say, yes, it is. So in this new complex yet simple world, psychologists are focused on two types of intelligence. There's fluid and then there's crystallized. Fluid intelligence is the ability to acquire and process information. Fluid intelligence has been increasing for decades. This is actually known as the Flynn effect. So the average child in the 1950s would fall short by today's standards, and the average child today would be gifted in fluid intelligence. Then there's crystallized IQ. This refers to what we actually know. In other words, our knowledge. Today, most of us solve problems not based on our knowledge, but on our capacity to connect online and to find a solution. In tech language, it's called the hyperlink economy. And some believe that it's the only knowledge that we actually need. In the past, we used to have to memorize phone numbers and equations and quotes and facts. Now, all we do is grab our phone and we have all those answers. There are a lot of moving parts to this question of brain versus technology. And I wanted to present to you a nice, well-rounded discussion. So I contacted a number of experts. For critical thinking... I spoke with John Donvan. You probably know him, or at least you'll recognize his voice. He's the longtime moderator of the Intelligence Squared U.S. debates. It's otherwise known as IQ2. They've hosted over 140 debates featuring today's top thinkers in technology, politics, culture, and more. John is an author. He's a correspondent for ABC News, a four-time Emmy Award winner, and a former White House correspondent who's been stationed all over the world. And if there's one place critical thinking must occur, it's in a debate and it's in national news. That's John Donvan's world. All right, John, I noticed that IQ2 offers what they call a new and improved IQ test. How does this new IQ test differ from, say, the traditional ones? The IQ test on our website, it's a game uh, rather than an actual IQ test. All right, you're smart. You've got a score of 200. It looked to me that that was pretty good compared to most of the others. But what's really the purpose? It was a way to inspire users to come and participate in good-humored but seriously intentioned contests we have to compete at a level of uh, high intellectual discourse. So if you say something smart, you get points. And if you get points, your IQ goes up. And the idea is to encourage a level of public discourse where people bring actual facts and logic and civility 
to the way that they argue. So arguing is good, but arguing badly is not. And if you argue well, you get more points. How does one argue, as you say, badly? You argue badly by not having facts to back up your case. You argue badly by changing the subject away from the issue at hand. You argue badly not by attacking or criticizing your opponent's ideas, but by attacking and criticizing your opponent or his or her motives, which is not an argument. That's an argument that says, I don't like you. That's not an argument that says, here's what's really wrong with your idea. So that's arguing badly. Arguing well is doing the opposite of all of those things. Staying on the topic, bringing facts and bringing logic to make your point. And if you have to disagree with somebody who has the other point of view, to do it in a way that's respectful, but devastatingly intellectual and devastatingly intelligent that you actually point out the flaws with their facts or the flaws with their logic. In your many successful years of moderating for the world's most important debates, have you noticed a change in how parties present arguments as a result of their increased reliability on technology as, say, a research source? I'm not a big believer that having information available to you online and through online devices or through your phone or even old-fashioned through a desktop is a bad thing. Information is information. There were always bad books, and there were always magazines that wrote things that were ridiculous and nonsense. There weren't as many out there as there are now in terms of printed words compared to the amount of text that's available on the Internet, of course. But you always had to decide who was a reliable uh, source and who was credible and who made a good case and who made a bad case. And so I don't think that our debaters are coming to the stage badly prepared in any way because they give information digitally. And by the way, a lot of them put information out digitally. A lot of our debaters have their own blogs and appear regular. They're on Twitter. What I would say is that maybe sometimes their arguments are more clearly articulated and with more sophistication on our stage than they are in a tweet. But that's the difference between having an hour and a half versus 140 characters. It's getting more and more difficult to find an unbiased source for research. I often find that websites have this polarized agenda attached to them, using pictures and language and clickbait as an emotional appeal. So when people are debating, do you find that they're using an increased amount of emotionalism to try and sway the one who actually judges the debate? So in our debates, it's the audience that chooses the winner. The moderator kind of stays out of it, just keeps the conversation moving back and forth. And, you know, with an audience there, there's no question that debaters can try to use emotion to swing the audience. In fact, it's not a bad tactic. And an emotion can be a very, very truthful thing. If there's a debater up there who's debating whether 9-11, for example, I'm making this up, we didn't have this debate, but say that the, the question was whether the Bush administration bore some responsibility for letting 9-11 happen on its watch. It's 16 years ago, so I feel we can talk about it a little bit more now. There's still a, such a strong emotional aspect to that event. And for either side to ignore that in trying to move the audience's feelings would be foolish for them to ignore that. However, having said that, well, I think that's part of the argument that they can make. Nobody's going to win by presenting an argument that's fully just emotion. Ultimately, the audience will still want to hear some facts and some persuasive argumentation that goes beyond just how people feel about it. And it's our experience that when debaters come in and rely too heavily on just feeling, they won't win the debate. And I think that's, again, because... Our audiences are actually watching two teams work very, very hard to be persuasive. If they were only hearing one side of that argument, 
online and it was all emotional, maybe they would be persuaded for a few minutes. But the beauty of a debate is that after a while, audiences begin to really perceive the true underlying arguments. And it's really almost always the strongest true argument that wins the debate. And a little emotion can be part of that. But if it's 100% emotion, it's probably not going to win. Well, it's actually really good to know that truth still triumphs. And you're keeping the art of debate alive and well. And yeah, I can see your point about emotionalism. Emotions are a huge part of who we are. But what about in a newscast? News anchors and reporters, they used to be neutral. They used to be unbiased. But nowadays, it seems like they've inserted their very own opinions and their emotions into the information that's being presented. I don't have a problem with emotion being part of a news report. You know, there's such a thing as emotional truth. And the way you feel about something tends to be authentic. For example, I did a story many years ago where a guy went crazy and rounded up a number of Amish girls and murdered them. And um, there, that was a horrible, horrible story. And I was personally very emotionally moved by it to the point where I choked up when I was reporting live for Nightline about it. And the interesting thing was I didn't like the fact that I choked up. It just felt kind of unprofessional to me to get emotional on air. But so many people afterwards said that they connected with the story at that moment because they saw me getting emotional about it. And I reconsidered my position about that and saw that there was very deep information in the fact that I got upset that some innocent children had been murdered by a crazy guy. But there was meaning in it. It was just how horrible can things get when something like this happens. And I I now stand by that story. That doesn't mean that journalism can't go too far in that direction and try hard to build ratings or to keep you from switching the channel by playing on emotional heartstrings. Then that's problematic for me if that happens because then the motive isn't like to reveal some truth. The motive is to keep you in your seat. And then you're sort of losing a little bit of the sense of what journalism is about. The current cultural mandate is that we must become proficient in our ability to utilize and even interact with technology. The most desired employees are those who can operate technology. So have you personally seen a shift in human intellect because we, in essence, have shifted our focus? No, again, I'm not somebody who's very, very freaked out about the fact that technology has become a big part of how we work out problems. You know, and also, especially in the last 20 years, the fact that we turn to the Internet and this gigantic, gigantic collection of information, not all of it reliable, but I think you can sort it out. I tend to think that's mostly a good thing. I just published a book last year, A History of Autism, and it's called In a Different Key, The Story of Autism. And I'm I'm very proud of how well it's done because it was nominated for a Pulitzer Prize. And it's got 110 or so pages of notes and bibliography in the back. That's why it's such a thick book. And the fact is that those notes and bibliography, I got almost all of them digitally. I was able to basically digitally check out books that were in libraries all around the world because they've been digitized. And it saved me a ton of money. It saved me a ton of time in travel. And it gave me access to so much more information than I ever would have had before that it made the book so much better. So for me, my personal example in that is that having technology put me in touch with books that I never would have discovered otherwise was a terrific thing. So my personal experience is the opposite of being scared of the technology. Okay, John, you just nailed the reason why I started talking tech in the first place. I was talking tech on radio long before it was even really a subject. 
because I wanted to give people the lowdown on what I knew was going to be a really, really big deal. We don't have to be afraid of new technology. We just have to be informed. Knowledge is, after all, power. But back to my original question. And my final question is this. In your opinion, do you think the average person has lost his or her ability to think critically as a result of being dependent on technology? I don't think at this point that technology is telling people what to think and duping them and manipulating them. I just don't think we're at that stage. And I'm still a big believer, based on my own personal experience, that having the technology to get you to discover information you wouldn't have before, also to discover points of view that you might not have had access to before, is a good thing. And it, of course, everybody lives in their own bubbles. And of course, we all know the problem that people are using the internet to reinforce their views. But the fact is that if they don't want to, or if they accidentally stumble across somebody else's idea, they might take it in. And before, if you lived in a town where people all had the same ideas, but you couldn't get to the next town except, you know, three days by horse, your world was smaller. And in my view now is we have access to a much bigger world of ideas than we ever did before. And that's because of technology. I think on the whole, even with things like filter bubbles, that the technology is making it possible, even for people who maybe aren't searching and seeking and aren't super intellectuals, still to run across ideas that they never would have come across before. That's great input. John knows people, how they research, how they debate. It's awesome to have a seasoned expert like John Donvin on this podcast. Up next, we're going to tackle a really difficult subject. We're going to talk about what's happening in the schools, what's happening with our children and the next generations. So stay right where you are. We have a quick message from our sponsors who help make this podcast possible. Now, let's talk about what's happening in the schools. Do you remember I mentioned something called the Flynn Effect? Well, for the first time ever, the Flynn Effect may be ending. You see, intelligence test results are showing signs of decrease. Some kids are no longer surpassing the generation before them. So I got to thinking, does this have anything to do with technology? And when I was doing my research, nobody really dares to go there. Well, not on a clinical level anyway. With this question burning in my mind, I contacted Joel Brand. Joel is the chief scientist over at Brand Gas. Joel's company manufactures some highly technical instruments used for analyzing gas and other chemical emissions, things I don't even pretend to understand. But he also tutors local students in math and science. With a Ph.D. in physics, a master's degree in math, and a B.S. in engineering, uh, let's just say he's been through his fair share of education and now is beginning to notice significant changes in both the tech world and inside the schools. But let's back up. Joel, what exactly do you do? It's always hard to answer what I do because I develop and manufacture industrial equipment, but I have kind of a fascination with education and actually the topic of critical thinking and how technology and math and science and all of those things play into everyday life even. As a teacher who has seen decades of education, and as you teach kids today, what observations have you made regarding the evolution of thought patterns in children as a result of technology? 
Well, that's a really good question, Kim. What I see a lot is there's a heavy emphasis now on sort of procedural thinking as opposed to really trying to understand what's going on. It's hard to say whether this is a result of technology or not. What I do notice is that there is definitely a shortened attention span uh, with the students. Instead of sitting there to think about an answer that they could come up with easily in a, in a couple of steps, it's sort of like, well, let's just Google this. And critical thinking is all about reflecting and, you know, somewhat deep thought and analysis and a mindful approach to things. And the shortcut idea really is at odds with that. So I think there's a chance that there is a connection with technology. Do you think our reliance on technology for factual knowledge is impeding our ability to, say, exercise our brains? In other words, is the average tech junkie becoming soft in the noggin? Have you seen any evidence to this effect? I don't necessarily think we're becoming soft because of that, but I don't think we're necessarily becoming any smarter because of the access to this factual knowledge either. And this is kind of the difference between what is knowledge, how does understanding how things work, how is that different than a bunch of facts that are in front of you? You need those facts. In order to read Shakespeare, you need to understand vocabulary. <laughs> but understanding vocabulary doesn't mean you're reading Shakespeare. And so getting the factual knowledge in place is good, but confusing knowledge and understanding with a big pile of facts that you can Google, that's where part of the problem comes in. You use a lot of critical thinking in your line of work, which is highly technical. Do you think humans will still have the same level of intellectual capabilities, say, 30 years from now, when more diagnostics are performed by technology? That's a really interesting question, Kim. I would say off the cuff, I don't think we're going to be increasing or decreasing our intellectual capability as a result of the diagnostics. Sort of as an aside, this is something we look at a lot in our instrument design. What diagnostics do you include? How can you trap for errors? How can you provide useful information? And automated diagnostics really do help speed up troubleshooting, but at the same time, you really need that critical thinking to be able to understand what that information is doing. Because sometimes you get this diagnostic that says, well, you know, I'm seeing low pressure in the cell, in the measurement cell, but really that's due to something else. So you need to decode that information. You need the critical thinking skills to figure out what those diagnostics mean, just as you would today. You're just getting sort of the input data a little faster or a little better. But I'm not sure it changes the critical thinking portion of it. I took a look and your company manufactures some pretty high-tech analytical instruments. Well, my listeners love high-tech, so try us. What exactly do you manufacture? How does critical thinking come into play? Real quickly, what we do is it's kind of fun. We, we develop and manufacture instruments for gas measurement and industrial processes. For example, smokestack emissions is one thing. And... At a fundamental level, they exploit some sort of physics, some sort of excitation and measurement of molecular properties at the very heart of it. But really, there's a whole bunch of other stuff that goes in that. There are chemical filters and optics and electronics and firmware and human interfaces and all of that to make the system work. And that's why I kind of bring a systems approach to this. And critical thinking really feeds into that systems idea because you're not just looking about, at, well, some spectroscopic concept. It's how do I make the whole thing work? Is it hard to find people who think like you do? With so many shifting to the hyperlink economy of thought, it must be really difficult for you to find new employees. 
It's hard to find people who think that way and who want to look at these kinds of problems and say, well, geez, I understand this part, but how does this fit in with this other one? And so I think it's getting harder and harder to find people who are not balkanized into, well, I'm an electrical engineer or I'm a mechanical engineer. And yes, that's what we've hired you for. That's what your expertise is. But I need you to think about how that fits in with other things. And I need you to understand what you know and what you don't know. Good point. So being a tech junkie or having a degree is only part of the equation. Right. The other thing that I think feeds into this is tech junkies or people who become engaged and sort of obsessed with social media or really anything else. That sort of becomes a distraction. And sitting there looking at Facebook to, to monitor how many likes you've gotten on a post is going to be this sort of distracted, short attention span mentality, which again is kind of an impediment to mindful, critical thinking about problems. So if you think that I'm just going to jump on Google and I'm just going to Google this and I'm just going to get those facts and I'm going to answer the problem is really different than, hmm, I better sit back and understand how this all fits together. Have you noticed anything else? How tech has influenced behavior or decision-making? I think one detriment of the technological landscape we live in now is how this short attention span and how technology actually causes poor planning. Because in the good old days, we'd call our friend and we would make plans for lunch tomorrow. Now it's, we'll text each other 15 times. If I'm 20 minutes late and I leave you hanging, it's okay as long as I text you that I'm going to be late or where I am. And that, to me, isn't really okay at all. That's that's a breach of our friendship. Um, it's, you're wasting my time. And just because you have a technological crutch doesn't mean it's okay to waste my time. <laughs> I, I know what you're saying. I feel like it takes me twice as long to text someone as it would be to have a quick chat. And when I'm having computer issues, yes, even me, the digital pro, can have issues from time to time. Sometimes I get caught up on my social media feeds, and pretty soon, there goes 30 minutes. I agree. I think it often becomes its own little time waster. And I think that's something that's a difficult question to ask. When we see these adverse effects of technology, is it really a problem with technology? It might be. Or is it something that just technology enables our natural tendencies to waste time or to jump to conclusions or to glom onto the simple answer as opposed to thinking about it? And I sit back and I say, you know what? My life was pretty good without Facebook. I'm not so sure that technology is saving me a lot of time. But on the other hand, I just couldn't produce the amount of podcasts and articles and radio shows and blogs without technology. There's no way we could go back. Right. And there is a real value in technology. For example, the business I run, we run out of a bunch of different remote locations. We couldn't have done this 20 years ago. So I think we do need to look at that and see where is it good and where is it really affecting our behavior and our thought processes detrimentally. Great stuff, Joel. I really appreciate your time and your input. Well, thanks, Kim, for having me. It's been a great pleasure. We've heard from two amazing experts, leaders in their field and in their communities, but I wanted to present a different angle. I found myself hunting for someone who has truly, truly, really studied people, their minds, their history, their beliefs, their weaknesses. A leader who has dealt with tragedy, and trauma, courage, education, all those things. And I found my final guest, Dr. Thomas Vail. Dr. Vail is a professor of critical thinking, philosophy, psychology, theology, and thanatology. I had to look that up too. 
It's the study of death. Retired from the Army as a colonel, he holds a Ph.D., an MTH, and a Master's in Strategic Studies. He has an extensive history teaching critical thinking and formal logic and currently chairs over a dozen dissertation committees. He spent a lifetime dealing with history, the human mind, and human vulnerabilities. Dr. Vale, with your background in history and strategy, do you see any obstacles with the way that people communicate nowadays, say through texting or social media? Because social media and other delivery systems are so rapid, you know, people are reading stuff in little sound bites. And, and with that, with 40-word characters, people don't compare and contrast information. They'll tend to either delete it outright or they'll accept it outright. And it's kind of like what is real and what is not becomes a real problem. If you study the works of Goebbels and his propaganda process of the Nazis, you tell somebody something over and over again until even the dumbest of them or stupidest of them, as Goebbels described it, begins to believe it. And if you present it in so many different ways over a spectrum of not only academia, but in information media sources, social media, etc. After a while, people begin to believe it as being true. So essentially, you're saying that when a wrong idea is repeated over and over, people are more likely to accept it. Have you actually seen this happening with your students? Well, I had a student a few weeks ago who had written all sorts of stuff in their literature review and their uh, chapter one of their dissertation, but it had because of their worldview and the way they were analyzing the information that they had downloaded from the library, they had (laughs) incorrectly interpreted each article that they had read. Every single one had been filtered through a particular perspective that the student wanted to see in the article, but wasn't there. And that's probably one of the biggest problems I see with, with a lot of people is they come with a preconceived notion of whatever they're wanting to see within the evidence that they're trying to then extrapolate conclusions from. And I see it in a variety of different venues where, where folks will take data and will have an already preconceived notion of what they wanted to say and then try to shape it to where it fits that particular perspective when in fact it may not do that at all. You know, there's one word that pops up. It's laziness. If a student finds something online that aligns with their point of view, why bother comparing at all? Why go through the trouble of fact-checking from opposing points of view when it really doesn't matter what the other side has to say? Well, you've just hit a very important aspect of what transformed in the last 50 years in education. I don't get it. What did I say? One of the things that, that I've been really concerned about is the educational activism that has grown over the last Well, since the uh, chartering of the National Education Association, and I think it was like early 1900s, since that time, you've seen a growing hegemony of control of what is considered to be good learning and what is considered to be appropriate uh, socialization of young people and their minds. You've you've probably watched some of the stuff going on on many of the campuses uh, across the country where you have, say, for instance, Harvard University, you have graduation ceremonies for one particular group with the exclusion of all other groups. And then you see colleges out in like uh, Evergreen out in Washington where students attack a professor out there for disagreeing with them. It goes on and on from the disingenuousness of the selling of different political or social agendas to where you see wholesale indoctrination of young people to think a certain way. 
as opposed to teaching them how to think about thinking, which is really what critical thinking is all about. The reason why, for instance, Socrates was executed was because he was charged with perverting the young people. What he was simply doing was teaching them to argue both sides of the point or an issue equally, which created all sorts of concerns for the Athenians in their nascent democracy, if you can call it that, because they couldn't tell whether the children were telling the truth or not. You end up with this real problem of, of teaching children how to truly think about thinking and then evaluate the information that's out there. On top of that, all information is validated by a community of practice. And that practice, uh, if it's drunk the Kool-Aid in a, in a group think type of way, after a while, stuff that may not be true is accepted as axiomatic. It's just really an interesting world to live in today. I had a talk with a guy who was my uh, contractor for working on my air conditioner yesterday, in which he said, I dropped out of college because I was being told to agree with whoever the professor was. I went, oh, wow, <laughs> really? And he said, yeah, I, you know, I, if I disagreed with someone, I ended up with an F on the paper. And so he said, I'm done, I'm not doing this anymore. And so I became a first-rate repair person. I said, okay, I'm, I'm with you. Uh, look at the number of males who are no longer in the college ranks. And you begin to wonder, wow, what's up with that? So if a student doesn't use the avenues mandated by his or her college, chances are they're dead in the water, depending on the professor. I get that. Which brings me to my last question. What about the conscience? What about the morality of the student? Like your repairman, for example. Technology may or may not be dumbing us down, but do you think students, the next generation, are putting morality and conscience and common sense on the back burner during their research just so they can, say, earn good points with the professor. I mean, would that really affect their studies? Morality has a certain level of blame state to it in being able to critically assess one's values in, in operation. And then the matter of conscience. How do you decide what is real or what is not? What is good behavior versus bad behavior? What is, and that sort of thing isn't taking place anymore. There's no good and there's no bad. So what you see in the use of technology in raising people's consciousness and what you were trying to suggest is a, is a dumbing down of people's consciousness, making them enamored by all of the beautiful sights and sounds that come out of the screens. It's basically entertainment. It is to agree, I think, softening and weakening the person's ability to critically review and analyze things that they're saying. The question that you have to raise is, to what degree did the researcher influence the outcome and the result? That comes from the way they ask the question, to where they operationalize the question, to the way they choose the research design, to then how they create hypotheses about whatever they're wanting to study, to then how they choose their dynamic analytical tools, to how they access the sample population, how they then measure all that stuff. It just goes on. There are many, many different steps that things can get convoluted and, and messed up along the way. And in the uh, social sciences, the biggest problem within it is that virtually none of the studies in the last 40, 50, 60 years are replicable. In other words, those studies cannot be replicated. So the biggest challenge for social science is to come back and say, well, we're really a science and we're not just social. And a lot of my students do this all the time is that they'll read these journal articles because they are peer-reviewed, believe that somehow they have a level of authority that transcends everything else that they would think about that. And so they will report what they find in the journals without critically analyzing what it is that they found. 
and the list can go on and on and on. Okay, so we've heard from three experts. And while this is one of those podcasts that you're going to want to listen to a few times to really, truly absorb what these guys are saying. Their words are simple enough, but there are some truly deep concepts hidden underneath. Dr. Vale's opinion may be a little tough to take, but we're going to ask whether technology is dumbing us down. We actually have to consider all the sides with an open mind to reason, analysis, and above all, critical thinking. Here's my take on these interviews. If you don't want to be dumbed down by tech, and if you don't want your time wasted or your opinion swayed, if you don't want to go soft or lazy in the brain, it's up to you to do the work. And I'm saying it as much for me as for you, truly. Nearly all the tools that we actually need to learn are right in front of us on the Internet. Never before have we had access to so much information. Yet at the same time, there's scary evidence that the English language and crystallized intelligence has declined. Obviously, this podcast is just the tip of the iceberg, but I hope that it will spark some really juicy discussions in your neck of the woods and on social media. I'm America's digital pro, Kim Commando. Now, I hope you got as much as podcasts as we did here in the studios, put it all together. That's one of the perks of working here, that we get paid to learn, and then we share that knowledge with you. Okay, your part is to pay it forward. It's free. So why not share this podcast, like it, and listen, if you have a topic that you'd love for us to explore and investigate, just let us know. And heck, if you have a question about something digital I can help you with, call 602-212-0058. Leave me your question and your contact information. That number again, 602-212-0058. I'll talk to you then.